I live out in the country. My wife and I live out in the country. And we've got a pretty strong community on the road that we live in. Very grateful for that community. And uh, one of our neighbors has a father who shows up at some of our community neighborhood activities. His name is Lou. I told Leanne, my wife, as we were coming into church this morning, I said, I'm going to tell him a story about Lou. And she said, said, well, you better not tell them one of the good ones. He's a character. Well, it was shortly after I met him that we were hanging out somewhere. And uh, he said, I heard you're a preacher. And I said, yes, I'm a preacher. He said, well, what kind of preacher are you? It's an open-ended question. I said, well, I hope I'm a good one. I'm not sure what you mean. If I'd had time, Father Alex, I would have said something spiritual. But I said, I, 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 I hope I'm a good one. I, I'm not sure what you mean. And he said, well, how do you pick what Bible verses you're going to preach on? And I said, oh, okay. Well, we, we have in our prayer book, we have a lectionary, and it's in your prayer books. And it tells us week by week what the scriptures are going to be, and it guides us through the gospels throughout the year. And so that, that's where... I find out what I'll be preaching on. And Lou said, nope. He said, <laughs> he said, my preacher just goes into his study and he prays and the Holy Spirit just tells him what to preach on. And I said, well, I guess that's one way to do it. And he said, so when you preach, do you just talk to people or do you use notes or do you write out your sermon?" And I said, well, when I started preaching, I used notes. And then I got really proud about not using notes. And I realized that was a problem. And then I started writing out more. And I realized that actually was working better for me. So some of my notes are notes. And some of them are stuff I want to write because I worked on saying it the right way. He said, nope. <laughs> said, my preacher, on Sunday morning, he just stands up on the stage. And the Holy Spirit tells him what to say. And I allowed that that would save me a lot of time during the week. <laughs> He asked me five or six other questions, and it turns out his preacher's a whole lot better preacher than I am. He's, pro he's probably right. But I'm glad we have the lectionary, because it forces us to deal with difficult passages, because never in a million years would I have ever picked the gospel from today to read. I asked David for some praise songs on it, and no, nothing. It is a difficult passage. Because it seems like Jesus is saying that marriage is limited to this life and this age. And it seems that way because that's what he says. Now I want to make very clear at the start, Jesus is talking about the institution of marriage. He's not talking about a special intimate bond between a husband and wife. He's talking about the institution of marriage, not the relationship of marriage. If you think for a couple of seconds, I'm talking about the legal part of marriage, you go too far down that road, we're going to get in all kinds of trouble. But the construction of marriage, the institution of marriage, that it is limited to this life and this age, that institution of marriage, because it just doesn't fit in the life to come. And that's a troublesome thing to think about. But I think that as we talk through this dense passage, that will end up with hope and comfort for the future. As odd as that is. Well, it seems like everywhere 
you go, just about every culture, just about every era in time, it seems like there's some kind of belief in an afterlife. And there's all kinds of traditions and ways of doing things to honor that, but the Jews, they're no different. They had a strong belief in the resurrection, as they thought of it, the bodily raising from the dead. Not an idea of some kind of spiritual happy place, but a bodily resurrection to this earth. And you find it in many of their writings. For example, in 2 Maccabees, one of the books of the Apocrypha, those are non-scriptural writings in the Jewish community between oh, the 400 years before the New Testament. In 2 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees chapter 14, there's a story of an elder named Razis. And Razis is, was one of the leaders of the Jews in the fight against, they're called the Greeks in the, um, in, in the book of Maccabees. Um, rather than fall into their hands, uh, he's standing on top of a wall of a fort and he takes his sword instead of falling into the enemy hands and he disembowels himself. He reached in, I'm reading to you, and tore out his remaining bowels and threw them down to the crowd. And so he died, calling on him who is Lord of life and spirit to restore them to him again. How much more bodily resurrection is that than to get your intestines back? Now that's apocryphal and it's not scriptural, but I'm, I'm giving that to you as an indication of the thinking at the time. Second Maccabees is from the first century BC. And from the first century AD, another Jewish writer, Baruch, writes this. The earth shall then assuredly restore the dead. It shall make no change in their form, but as it has received them, so shall it preserve them. And as it delivered them up unto it, so also shall it raise them. So there would be a resurrection, but that when you were raised from the dead, you'd be raised the same way you died, in the same form, the same relationships, and so on. And Baruch is writing about um, the first century AD. And so we're bracketing Jesus in time here with these thoughts. And I'll come back to Baruch because Baruch is essentially saying what the Pharisees are saying about resurrection, and we'll get to that. Well, the, the Jews, of course, also had, had scripture, the Old Testament, right? And they knew that the scripture promised resurrection life. Psalm 16, 9, the psalmist David writes, My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave, neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. This is after death. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. On your right hand are pleasures forever. David writes that his flesh will dwell with God, that after death he will find the path of life because God will show it to him and God will take him into his presence where he'll live forever. Psalm 49, 15, the psalmist again says, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He will receive me. That's a voice of confidence in the resurrection. Daniel writes right at the end of his prophecy, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Job writes, in fact, it was in our reading today, about the bodily resurrection that he anticipates. It's always been a part of the Anglican prayer service. And in fact, I'd like you to take your Book of Common Prayers. The red book looks like this. You can pick it up. It's not going to hurt you. Page 249 in the Book of Common Prayer. 
If you've attended an Anglican funeral, the celebrant reads this during the procession. And there right in the middle you see our reading from today. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I see shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. We affirm not only in Scripture, but also in our prayer book, a belief in the bodily resurrection. So the, the Jewish people had their scriptures. They had what we call the Old Testament, what they call the Bible, as their traditional idea about, as well as their traditional ideas about resurrection. And so resurrection is, is all over the scenery here. But there were some dissenters to that view among the Jews. And they were known as the Sadducees. Luke introduces them to you with simply a brief description of what they didn't believe in. In verse 27 of our, our gospel reading, Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. That's why they're so... That's why they're so sad, you see. They're so sad because there's no life to come. There's no hope for the future. No penalties in any afterlife. No rewards in any afterlife because there is no life to come. That means there's no hope for justice and there's no hope for the future. Acts 23, 8 adds this to us from Scripture. He descri- uh, 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 Luke describes them this way in the book of Acts. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So the Sadducees deny any kind of spirit, angel, or resurrection. And the Pharisees believe in resurrection, angels, and spirits. So that's the context of what we're talking about here. Now, the Sadducees were not an impressive group of people in terms of numbers. In terms of numbers, they were very small, but they're impressive in power. The aristocrats were the Sadducees. The wealthy, the influential, and the priests were Sadducees. And, of course, the chief priests were Sadducees. The high priests were Sadducees. Most of the Sanhedrin, that's a word you come across in the Gospels occasionally, the group of 70 rabbis who, who made religious decisions about Judaism, most of them were Sadducees. And they're all connected to the temple. The focus of their religious activity is the temple. So they sat in the seats of power and influence, even if they weren't very large in numbers. Some have speculated that because they're aristocrats and intellectuals that they have encountered Greek philosophy and they've adopted some materialism and that that's why they deny the existence of angels or spirits or any kind of afterlife. Very strong possibility. Well, let's look at the Sadducees as they approach Jesus here. They approach Jesus in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees. They're looking for him. They're looking for him because they're angry at him. Because this is Wednesday. How do I know it's Wednesday? Matthew 22 says it's Wednesday. Well, you have to count the days, but it's Wednesday. It's the same day as, Matthew says it's the same day as the Pharisees asked him questions, and Matthew puts that day on Wednesday, Wednesday of Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life before the resurrection. Wednesday was a busy day for Jesus. It's the last week of his life. On Monday, he'd cleanse the temple. The Sadducees are around the temple. The next day, of course, he's going to be betrayed. The next day after that, on Friday, he's going to be crucified and so on. But on Wednesday, he's teaching in the temple. 
And he's in dialogue with the people and he's in conflict with these leaders. The Pharisees have come after him, the Herodians have come after him, and now it's the Sadducees' turn. And they're furious at Jesus. You know, when you read the gospel, you don't see the Sadducees very often. They don't show up when Jesus is doing his ministry in Galilee. They don't show up on this very long walk from Galilee down to Jerusalem. That's because you always find the Sadducees where they hang out. They always hang out at the temple. They're always in Jerusalem and hanging around the temple. And so when Jesus cleanses the temple, he makes the Sadducees angry because the Sadducees ran the temple operation. It's very lucrative and it's a very powerful position. They were wealthy and Jesus interrupted their business. The Pharisees hate Jesus because he destroys their theology. The Sadducees hate Jesus because he's destroyed a part of their business and he threatens their political power. And a little more background about the Sadducees, that they want to cooperate with Rome. Because since there's no resurrection and no afterlife and no justice to be found in the afterlife, well then, they put all their stock in this life. And if you're going to be powerful in occupied Israel, you've got to curry favor with the Romans, especially if your source of power is the temple. Because all the Romans have to do is say, oh, forget you guys, destroy the temple, you have to worship the emperor, and they can do that by snapping their fingers, and all of a sudden they lose their power. So they did everything they could to keep Rome happy. The people hate them for this. They hate them for the corruption of the system, the temple system. And by the way, the Sadducees were right about Rome because when Rome actually destroyed the temple in AD 70, after that you never hear about the Sadducees again because their whole source of power is gone. Well, in matters of justice and the law, the Sadducees were cruel and they take after Romans in that regard. They build their power on their cruelty. The historian Josephus, who's writing right during uh, the, the Roman war on Israel in around AD 70, tells us the Sadducees were harsher on the people than any other group of Jews. In fact, he even says the Pharisees were lenient in dealing with people compared to the Sadducees. They were brutal in enforcing their will upon the people as they interpreted the law of God in order to keep their power and position. And they prided themselves on their literal interpretation of the Mosaic law more than anything. They fancied themselves biblical scholars. Now the question comes, how in the world could they see themselves as biblical scholars and, and, and taking a very literal and direct interpretation of scripture and not accept what I read to you from scripture about the resurrection? Well, that's because the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of Moses as scripture. Everything after that the Sadducees taught was just commentary on the Pentateuch, the first five books. And commentaries can be right or wrong, so they don't have any authority. So they neglect and reject everything after the first five books. You might remember, I preached about the Samaritans a few weeks ago, the Samaritans also accepted only the first five books of Moses as scripture. The prophets had a different reason though. If you read, this, I'm sorry, the Sadducees had a different reason for rejecting the prophets. If you read the prophets, the prophets are really harsh on rich people, powerful people, and priests. In other words, the prophets are really hard on the Sadducees because the Sadducees are the rich and the powerful and the priests. And so they do away with the prophets and only focus on the Pentateuch. 
Now, the doctrine of resurrection life can't be found in the Pentateuch, they said. So, we must reject the, res- the resurrection. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, come on, you can't read the five books of Moses and reject a belief in angels. I know. I don't have an answer for you. But that's their answer for the resurrection that is not found in the Pentateuch. Now, on the other hand, the Pharisees talk about the resurrection all the time. They're very definitive about the resurrection. They love to discuss the resurrection. And they followed the writing of, or the, 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 the concept that's contained in the writing of Baruch that when, when you, in the resurrection life, you'll be raised the same way you were when you died. And the Pharisees loved to discuss all these details. Like they wondered, when you're raised from the dead, will you be naked? Will everybody be naked or will everybody have clothes on? Well, like me, they just couldn't imagine a world where everybody was naked. And so they, they said, well, okay, they're, they're going to have clothes. Well, then the question is, well, where do the clothes come from? And then the question is, what kind of clothes are they going to be? Does God give resurrected bodies special clothes, or are they raised in the, in the clothes that they were buried in? And most of them thought that you'd come back in the clothes that you were buried in. And then they discussed about what if you had physical ailments in this life? When you were resurrected, would you have those same physical ailments? They argued back and forth about that. And the majority opinion was that you, that you would. That you would rise in the same clothes you died in. You would have the same body you had in the condition it was when you died. And they had all kinds of ideas. Many of them believed that all the Jews who died throughout history and around the world would all be resurrected in, in Israel. And some of them worked out that there must be like a series of tunnels under the earth that all slant downward until they meet right below Israel so that when the bodies start to be resurrected and they're starting to come awake, they don't really know where they're going, but the incline of the tunnel leads them to Israel and they all get in like a big pile into Jerusalem and then the resurrection comes and all of a sudden they all come bursting up at, at once. And the Pharisees love to discuss these kind of things and come up with these kind of ideas, you see. And just like a lot of you, the Pharisees thought that this was just ridiculous. They thought it was bizarre. It was outrageous. And so they mocked the resurrection. And one of the things that was bizarre and irrational about the resurrection, the way the Pharisees thought about it, was what if somebody had married more than once in this life, and the next life, if you're going to come back in the same clothes, in the same form, with the same physical ailments, and the same relationships, well, in that case, who's going to be the husband and wife? Well, actually, it's really a good question. I wrote down here, death is, was common in this world. I guess, I guess death is common in this world. It happens to everybody once, I guess. It's not any more common. But, you, you, of course, they had situations where you have a husband and wife who are married, and one of them dies, and there is a remarriage, and then the question is, well, in the resurrection, how does the marriage, what is the marriage, the institution of marriage, how does that apply here? Yeah, it's a good question. And apparently this question had never been sufficiently answered because when it comes their turn to throw a question at Jesus, this is their best shot. They've been doing it for a long time and they know this question shuts all the Pharisees up. So they come to Jesus and they come approaching him wanting to get rid of him because he's a threat to their power. And in this dense passage, we see what's playing out in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 47, the chief priests, now who would the chief priests be? They're Sadducees, right? The chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. 
Now, the Sadducees and the Pharisees can't agree on anything much theologically, but they agree they want to get rid of Jesus. A few Sundays ago, we read about um, the, the approach of the Pharisees was to get him arrested by the Romans. Let the Romans deal with him. But the Sadducees take a very different approach. I don't really think most of them wanted him arrested by the, by the Romans. I think they were very worried about Rome getting involved in anything having to do with religion. Because if they do anything to irritate the Romans that has to do anything with religion, the Romans are going to say, be done with it, worship the emperor. Destroy the temple. And it threatened the security and the power of the Sadducees. Back to John 11 again. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? The last sign was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They never said he's a fake, he's a phony, he's a fraud. They said, if this guy keeps doing this, it's going to get Rome's attention and they're going to come in. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. That's the Sadducee argument. If the Romans come in, they're going to take away our position and our power. But one of them, one of the Sadducees, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you do not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas says to the Sadducees, you don't understand the best thing to do is get rid of this guy or else we're really going to lose everything. John goes on to say that that was actually a word of prophecy that Caiaphas spoke that Jesus would die for the whole people. But maybe there are some Sadducees who still want to get rid of Jesus without getting Rome involved. And I think that's what's going on here. The Sadducees' approach here is to discredit him in front of the people by asking him a question that nobody can answer. This is the one that stumps everybody. They say, let's make him look stupid in front of everybody. Let's make him look foolish and then nobody will follow him anymore. So we see the approach of the Sadducees. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, that's the setup. Teacher, Moses wrote for us in Deuteronomy that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is the law that God gave Moses in Deuteronomy. Now, one thing that I want to make a point of this today is that when we read Moses' law, Moses' law is not God's design for a perfect world or a perfect society. Moses' law does not meet God's expectation. That's not me saying that. Jesus says that. Jesus says God gave Moses that law because of your hard-heartedness, but God's law says this. God's standard is higher. I make a big deal about that because oftentimes people will go to the Mosaic law and say, oh, well, here's a law about slavery, so God must be in favor of slavery. No, God gave a law that deals with slavery in the society. That's not me saying that. Jesus says that several times. The law says this, but I'm telling you, this is God's plan. Don't take the laws as being normative of what should be done in society. But this was a law with a good purpose. The idea is that if a, if a, a, a husband dies, the widow's not cast out, but is kept into the family and is given opportunity to have children to support her. She's not, she's not cast aside. So this is the situation, the Sadducees say. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. 
and the second and the third, ter- third took her, and likewise all seven children. All seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. By the way, Matthew's account in Matthew 22 says that, 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 that they say, we have seven brothers with us. Are they saying by that that this really happened? I don't, I don't know. But there are seven brothers. The first takes a wife and dies childless. The second takes a wife and dies childless. The third takes a wife and dies. This is a dangerous lady. I think if I'm brother number four, I'm getting nervous. Certainly if I'm brother five, six, and seven, I'm really worried about the pattern that seems to be developing here. Well, seven brothers marry this woman, and all the brothers die. And then verse 32, mercifully, finally the woman died also. No telling how many lives were saved by that. And so they make this kind of bizarre situation, this kind of absurd situation. And they say, well, so in the resurrection, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. You can see the smirk on their face. How many times did they ask that question to somebody talking about the resurrection and showed what a fool they were. So they present the absurdity of resurrection as they understand it. It's a joke to them. So we saw the Sadducees approach and the absurdity of the resurrection as they saw it. And then we see the answer of Jesus. In verse 34, but before we get to verse 34, something's left out of Luke's account that Matthew includes. Matthew includes that Jesus told the Sadducees, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. How painful was that? They prided themselves on their intellect and on their interpretation of scripture. Now, I'm not preaching on the text from Matthew, so I won't spend a lot of time there, but Jesus gets right to the point. Interpreting Scripture accurately is the source of understanding. But you didn't understand the Scriptures, as every false teacher doesn't. You do not understand the Scriptures, nor the power of God. If you understood what the Scriptures taught, you would first understand that there will be a resurrection, and then you would understand that God has the power to create a state of resurrection where your absurdities don't apply. And Jesus gives them the answer. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Jesus is teaching us here that marriage as the institution Again, I'm not talking about a marriage relationship or the special intimate bond between a husband and wife. I'm talking about marriage as an institution, as it's designed, has no place in the coming kingdom. And come on, why not? Because the purpose of marriage, Jesus says, is for this age, this present time, and not for the coming kingdom. It just isn't appropriate, and it doesn't fit. Well, come on, why not? And for that, we have to go back to the purpose of marriage. Marriage gets defined and redefined over and over and over again. Today, getting married mostly means you have access to the benefits your partner's employer provides. But it's a bit more than that. 
I'd like you to turn to the prayer book again. The red book in your pews, page 200 in your prayer book. At Dossison Center this weekend, I attended a session by, with, uh, led by uh, Archbishop Bob Duncan, who headed the task force that developed the Book of Common Prayer. And he said something interesting, that this is the first English prayer book, Anglican prayer book, um, designed to be used by Christians in a pagan society. Well, this is what it says on page 200. But there's, that's what I mean. There's a lot of good stuff in the prayer book. Pick it up and take a look at it. Is designed to help guide Christians through a pagan society. Well, as it happens, according to canon and according to the prayer book, if you want to be married in an Anglican Church of North America parish, you have to sign this statement. We, name and name, desiring to receive the blessing of holy matrimony in the church, do solemnly declare that we hold marriage to be a lifelong union of husband and wife as it is set forth in the Book of Common Prayer. We believe it is established by God for, now these, this is the purpose of marriage. Let's read this slowly and keep coming back to the question. We believe it is established by God for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Does that fit in with the coming kingdom of God? Jesus says no. He says why? Because nobody dies. There's no need to replenish the population. There's no need for procreation because nobody dies. That's what Jesus says. Nobody dies. There's no need to raise children in the love and nurture of the Lord because nobody dies. Nobody needs to be replaced. Number two, for mutual joy and for the help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. How much adversity is there going to be in the coming kingdom of God? None. Who's going to provide comfort in the coming kingdom of God? God, he's going to wipe away all of our tears. To maintain purity, the 1662 prayer book said, to avoid fornication. That's what we're talking about here. To maintain purity so that husbands and wives with all the household of God might serve as holy and undefiled members of the body of Christ. How much impurement and defilement is there going to be in the coming kingdom of God? None. Fourth and last, for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom in family, church, and society to the praise of his holy name. How much need is there going to be for the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom in Christ's kingdom? None. If what I'm saying to you troubles you, there's one part that I skipped, mutual joy. If what I'm saying is troubling you or bothering you in some way, cling to that. The mutual joy of husbands and wives in heaven is going to be incredible. Cling to that, okay? But as for the rest of what we're talking about, it doesn't fit. God designed marriage as an institution to deal with the adversity and the problems and the temptations of this life. And it just doesn't fit. Because they never die, but instead, they're like angels. The angels were all created at one time. They don't procreate, and they don't die. Resurrected humans are resurrected at the same time, on the last day. They don't procreate. They don't die. 
They're like angels. And then notice the little phrase in verse 35. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. Why does he say that? Well, I think there's two reasons why. First, it's a warning. He's warning the Sadducees, obviously, you aren't worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead because you don't even believe in it. But now, on the other hand, how would one be considered worthy to enter heaven? How is one considered worthy to become a child of God, a son of resurrection? Well, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible's clear about that. We don't have any worthiness of ourselves. All our righteousness is filthy rags. Or as the prayer book says, there is no health in us. Worthiness is because we are granted the merit of Christ or granted the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, all by grace and grace alone. So first it's a warning to the Sanhedrins, but also it's an offer. Those who are worthy to attain to that age, attain that worthiness through the merit of Christ, all by grace and by grace alone. Because people don't die anymore. They're equal to angels. They are sons of God, sons of the resurrection. What does that mean? It means they take on God's life. God's life, which is an eternal life. They become sons of the resurrection. Whenever you see in the Bible, son of, son of this age, son of God, son of the resurrection, you'll see that repeated throughout the Gospels and, in fact, oftentimes in Paul. It, it does two things. First of all, it isn't about the gender of the person being talked about. It's about the laws. Because the laws everywhere in the ancient world said that only sons inherit property. And so to be, to be called a son of, resu- of the resurrection doesn't have anything to do with the, the, sexuality, the sex of the person being talked about, but the fact that they have a right to inherit it. In fact, they changed that in the collect for today. Cranmer's collect had uh, sons of God and sons of the... Uh, uh, sons of eternal life, children of God, and heirs of eternal life, because that's what the word means, okay? It means that they inherit. But it's also a way of saying and defining the essential nature or the essential defining quality of something. If someone says you're a son of God, that means your essential essence of life is divine and devoted to God. If you're a son of Satan, some people are called that, then your essential quality is demonic, satanic. If you're a son of the resurrection, you possess resurrection life. If you're a son of this age, then this age is your defining reality. If you're a son of the age to come, then you'll inherit eternity, and that's your defining reality. And Jesus says that those who come to the age of the resurrection will take on the character of angels who do not procreate. They'll take on the character of sons of God, that they'll be possessors of the pure, fulfilling life of God. And they'll take on the character of resurrection. Marriage is not necessary in the coming kingdom because it was created lovingly, designed by God to deal with the problems and issues and adversities and temptations of this age, of this world, of this life. So Jesus straightens them out. You've made an, you see absurdity because you've ascribed absurdity to a situation that God has the power to work around if you'd only understand the scriptures. But that's not the main answer. The main answer comes in verse 37, and it's a powerful answer. 
but that the dead are raised. Jesus says, in other words, let's get back to the point. Forget the marriage thing. Let's talk about the resurrection. But the dead are raised, which is the big issue here. The Sadducees say they aren't. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. Moses. He takes on the Sadducees on their own ground. But the dead are, that, that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The important thing to know is that Jesus is quoting Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And here's what Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. In fact, Matthew chapter 22 puts it that way as well in this describing the same scene. When God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I used to be the God of Isaac. There was a time back then when I was the God of Abraham, of Jacob. He says, I am. I am, therefore they are. He doesn't say, I was their God. He says, I am their God. I am and they are, not I am and they used to be. And that's not just here in Exodus chapter 3. It's all through the books of Moses. In Genesis chapter 26, Genesis chapter 28, God calls himself the God of Abraham, and Abraham's long been dead. In Exodus chapter 3, and again in verse four, chapter 4, God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all three are dead. Jacob's been dead for 400 years. So is God the God of dead people? Well, from our perspective, they're dead, but from his eternal perspective, they're what? They're alive. But Jesus says they all live to him. The God who says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob isn't establishing his glory on the basis that he's worshipped by corpses. I'm the God who was worshipped by some people who died. That wouldn't bring him any honor. But each one is singled out individually, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Each of them as individuals is alive to God in God's presence in relationship to God, though dead from a worldly perspective. No, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. To God, all who are his are alive and in union with him in his presence, in his eternal presence, just as the Old Testament says, death does not end one's existence. There's another life, an afterlife, a resurrection life for those who belong to God. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. We'll live forever, and if we belong to Christ, we will live forever in the presence of Christ and in the presence of God the Father while being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So the enemies of Jesus give him an opportunity, an opportunity to be shown a fool, and he takes that opportunity to demonstrate his wisdom his love of scripture, his understanding of scripture, and his promise of resurrection. And so this passage is a defeat for his enemies, but it's a triumph for his friends. They're stunned into cold, stone-hard silence. They're afraid to ask any more questions, but we come away rejoicing. Our Lord's affirmed with his own lips the promises of the Bible concerning resurrection. And we live in that hope which Jesus himself affirmed in this great encounter with his enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.